You are listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Only accidents and homicides claim more adolescent and young adult lives in the U.S. than suicide. And researchers who are interested in suicide prevention have found that college students are a population of young adults easily studied and ripe for creative new approaches to intervention. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and joining me from Atlanta, Georgia, is psychiatrist Stephen Garlow of the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Emory University School of Medicine. Welcome, Dr. Garlow. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Dr. Garlow, you recently published an article in the Journal of American College Health about an interactive web-based method of outreach to college students at risk for suicide with some very interesting findings about this new approach to outreach. But first, what is the rate of suicide among college students? That's a great question. It's been very difficult to get a good, accurate read on the rate for a number of reasons. One I think colleges are reluctant to report this type of information is probably the main one. Two, they are dispersed. That is, they happen in different places. In general, for this age group, for the 18 to 24-year-old age group, we think about this is the third leading cause or second leading cause. It's probably something like 7 per 100,000 students per year, somewhere in that range, 5 to 7. Young adults are often an underserved population medically, perhaps due to poor insurance coverage, as well as to that gap between being taken care of by their parents and and then taking responsibility for their own health. Do you think that this might contribute to the poor detection of the risks in these people? I think that's an excellent point. I think that's one of the key ones. A young adult, a person just out of the house, is not thinking about things like healthcare, is not thinking about things like going to the doctor. They may feel bad at some point. They may have depression, but they don't necessarily understand it or recognize it as, as a disease state or something that they should be getting treated for. So I think that idea of being involved or invested in their own healthcare and knowing and be thinking about, oh, well, there's, I need to go to the doctor, here's where the, the student health center is, those sorts of things I think would be critical in terms of helping young people get better awareness and better treatment. And what are the most significant risk factors for suicide among young adults? Among young adults, it is depression, the diagnosis of depression, substance use, in particular alcohol use. Young adults who are intoxicated can be very impulsive. When a person's intoxicated, there's a disinhibition. Having had some kind of a failure or setback, having had some kind of a crisis either at school or at home in the family can be risk factors. A breakup of a relationship can be a provocation. So these are the main sort of things we need to be looking for. And what are the most common methods for young people who attempt suicide? It differs by gender. Women predominantly take overdoses, and men take a lot of overdoses as well. But in terms of attempts, in both groups, non-lethal attempts are mostly overdoses, Lethal outcomes are use of a firearm and use of a firearm for males, for young males with access to a firearm. That can be a particularly volatile mixture. And for women, it is mostly going to be overdoses on on pharmaceutical products, on medications. What inspired you to look at how students who attempt and die from suicide use campus-based clinical services? I've had an interest in understanding and predicting who is and who isn't at risk for suicide in the context of just in the course of my practice as a psychiatrist, because this is one of the key 
problems in medical practice and psychiatric practice is, is identifying, is recognizing that person who really is at risk and trying to make some intervention. So I've just had an interest in, in identifying and determining who that person is throughout my career as a psychiatrist. And to participate in this particular project, this is the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention College Screening Project that you're mentioning, was a unique opportunity to have a unique intervention or a unique outreach method to a kind of a closed population, and then to be able to study their responses and to study the types of experiences they were having provided a very nice contained package, contained method to make this kind of investigation. In the article, you mentioned that there are increasing numbers of students entering college with psychological problems. Can you talk about that? Yeah, it turns out that for many students coming into college who end up having depression, they've already had their first episode of treatment in high school. And so one of the main risks for them having a depression in college is that they actually had a depression in high school. And so for many of these students, they already have a track record, a background in having a mental illness and receiving treatment. Really surprising in our study, about 16% of the people who had responded to this email solicitation had a history of having made a suicide attempt. To me, that was probably one of the most remarkable findings was the rate that people had depression, that the rate that people had previous episodes of self-harm and suicide attempts. Were those the same students who had received treatment? Previously, most of those, I'm assuming, had been treated currently in the current state when they responded to our study. They were not in treatment. The people in our study who were the most severely depressed and who were having suicidal ideation were the ones who were not currently receiving treatment. There's a real disconnect between the amount of distress and the amount of suffering that the students were having versus the amount of treatment that they were getting. And what are the factors that you believe prevent college students from getting help for mental health problems? I think probably first and foremost is stigma, the idea that going and getting help for a mental illness is somehow a sign of weakness or inferiority, that you'll be discriminated against in some way, made fun of in some way. In our study, there was a lot of concern about confidentiality and how it might impact their performance in school, how it might impact their work potential, their employment potential, how it might be communicated back to family. So confidentiality, which to me is sort of the other side of stigma. People don't want people to know about this because of the consequences that it might have in their life, independent of their mental illness, of their depression. You know, I found that interesting in your article that you actually had quotes from some of the treatment and also, you know, were saying that students are so concerned about confidentiality. How did that come about? Well, how the system worked is that it was all the undergraduates received an email essentially inviting them to come out and fill out this, to come to a website, a secure website where they'd set up their own password and they'd fill out this questionnaire form based on the PHQ-9, which measures the symptoms of depression. But we also asked about current suicidal ideation, past suicide attempts. We asked questions about did they feel out of control and desperate and overwhelmed, strong emotional questions like that. Those results would go to a counselor or therapist who would then review each individual's responses and then send a message back to them, essentially giving a report on the results of the evaluation. And then there was a dialogue feature where the students could then essentially email or text message back and forth with the therapist in a completely anonymous fashion prior to being encouraged to come into this, the goal of which was to get them to come into treatment, to come into face-to-face treatment. But having a live person there on the other end, a, a live person giving a real evaluation personalized to the individual students and available to sort of dialogue with them, was a very powerful outreach method. And as you can see in some of those quotes, 
the students' concerns were things like confidentiality, were things like how they'd be perceived by their friends or their family, how it would impact their standing at the school, how it would impact their grades, how it would impact their employment status. And they seemed very willing to engage in these anonymous dialogues with the therapist. And willing to allow you to publish their thoughts. Sure. That's great. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Reach MD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and my guest is psychiatrist Stephen Garlow, and we're discussing the assessment of suicide risk. College students aren't the only ones who hesitate to seek mental health care. Physicians are often remiss in attending to depression and suicide in their patients and in themselves. Let's talk about the suicide rate among physicians, because surely that plays a factor in how well they're able to find and address the warning signs of suicide in others. Uh, That's a great question. Physicians, we are a strong-minded, strong-willed, stoic group who are trained for many, many years to put the needs of the patient ahead of ours, to focus on what we have to do in terms of our clinical responsibilities or obligations to our patients, it becomes very easy then to sort of not pay attention to our own needs, to our own emotional state, to discount feeling burned out, feeling exhausted, feeling anxious, feeling stressed and overwhelmed. All of those things contribute to risk in physicians. That The expectation from the very, very beginning of our training is that we are going to take care of it. We'll solve the problem. That's implicit in the training of a physician is that we are trained to be sort of the buck stops with us. We're the ultimate arbiter that we make the difficult decisions. And in that training, it's very, very easy then to not pay attention to our own needs, not pay attention to just discount our own emotional state, our own distress, our own suffering, because our obligation is elsewhere. Do you think it interferes with the ability to recognize those things in others? Because it would then cause us some some self-recognition I think that's possible. That certainly, I think, contributes to our difficulty sometimes in assessing substance use disorders. Our own utilization of things like alcohol can sometimes complicate our recognition and assessment in our patients. I think our talking to our patients about suicide risk is another one of those areas where that will also force us to focus on our own self, our own thoughts, our own ideas. And then as we are able to do through our training, we can block ourselves out of our own thoughts and not deal with our own thoughts. And in addition to those personality qualities that you described that physicians share, if the physician does recognize that they are suffering and need some help, are there other issues that might stand in the way of their getting help, things about confidentiality and career? Absolutely. Confidentiality, career, report to the licensing board, the medical board. Everybody has concern about the integrity of their medical license what their peers will think about them, how they will be perceived, that they will be perceived as not as competent or not as capable, impacts on malpractice, impacts on practice opportunities, employment opportunities. I think those are all critical to a physician's just lack of engagement of mental health resources. Let's talk a little about the statistics involved here, like how physicians compare to the general population. And then there's just a really interesting sex difference among physicians as compared to the general population with regard to risk. In the general population, males typically commit suicide about four to one to females. That ratio equalizes amongst physicians. That's been subject to some conversation, some discussion as to why that may be. What is it about a physician 
experience about a female physician that makes them appear, at least in terms of suicide risk, more demographically like a male. That's a completely open question at this point. Some would say it has something to do with the stress. It has something to do with the hierarchical nature of medicine and sort of the medical profession. This expectation that we solve our own problems and that we don't ask for help. Women in general have more depression than men, so in some ways should have greater suicide risk. And if you then couple that to not wanting to ask for help or a professional expectation of not seeking that kind of help, uh, that's going to increase risk. Thank you for listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and my guest has been psychiatrist Stephen Garlow of the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Emory University School of Medicine. Thank you for joining me, Dr. Garlow. Thank you. It was a pleasure. 